Hey everybody, welcome back to the Financial Freedom Show. My name is Rob Berger. In this episode, we're gonna tackle a question you all have, have emailed me about many, many times, and it's this. Should we have international stock funds, ETFs or mutual funds in our portfolio? Or should we just stick you know, with uh, US stocks, whether it's a, a S&P 500 or perhaps a total stock market? And uh, let me just give you an example of one email uh, I received. And uh, they said, thank you um, for all your wonderful work. It uh, greatly helped me as I transition from working to FIRE, that's financial independence, retire early. I have compared the two fund portfolio, so that would be just uh, US stocks and US bonds, with the three fund portfolio with the 70-30 mix in portfolio visualizer. And just as an aside, the three fund portfolio uh, would include international stocks. Uh, they go on, help me with my analysis. It appears that the international fund causes more volatility, less returns, and a higher downside. Am I looking at this correctly? Thanks. So that's it's a great question. And the last thing we want is both more volatility, less returns, and a higher downside. I mean, that's, you know, that ain't good. And so the question is, is that right? Have international stocks performed so poorly, number one? And, and number two, if, if that's true, why in the world would we ever invest in international stocks? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look briefly at the at portfolio visualizer and see if how the returns have played out. We're also going to look at current valuations using Morningstar. Then I'm going to give you what I think are some really compelling reasons why we shouldn't invest in international stocks. And then at the end, I'm going to tell you why I nevertheless do. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. And uh, let me begin with uh, Portfolio Visualizer. Show it to you on my screen here. I've already sort of pre-populated uh, this. What I've done is I've got uh, two portfolios. The first one here, Portfolio One, is just uh, the, the three fund portfolio. It includes, as you can see right here, 30% uh, of international stocks. And then a second portfolio just gets rid of that 30% in international stocks and puts it up here in the US stock market. That's it, that's as simple as can be. When you analyze it, Portfolio Visualizer gives us data back to 1987. So we're looking at over 30, what, 34 years. And uh, here are the results. There are the portfolios. And as you can see, um, the Boglehead three fund portfolio that includes international stocks significantly underperformed a two fund portfolio that put everything in the US stock market. 10,000 grew to 191. For the for the fund for the portfolio with international stocks 290 for the fund without you can see the compound annual growth rate you know and also the standard deviation a measure of volatility a little higher when you exclude international although when you look at the worst years they're actually a little worse with the three fund and the max drawdown is actually a little worse with um the three fund portfolio as well so when we look at this boy that's uh pretty tough. I mean, it certainly suggests that international stocks have not, not helped that much. Now, one of the things before we, we move away from comparing the performance, I always like to add a scenario where we're contributing money because this, I think, mirrors uh, what you and I actually do in our working years. So I'm going to add 250 a month, adjust it for inflation. Let's rerun the numbers. Still probably going to be in favor of, of no international. It is. It's a little closer. Of course, we're dealing with a bigger uh, final balance because we were contributing $250 a month. Um, and there's still a big difference, about 400 grand. Although when you look at the compound annual growth rate, well, you know, 1% or 1.1% is a big deal. Uh, and, and there you see it. 
Um, so still, uh, no question, with, uh, if, you, if, if we exclude international stocks, we will have done better. Now, the other thing I like to do, and we're going to remove this, these contributions for a minute, I like to look at decades. Um, and let's start with the current or most recent, we'll say from 2011 to, to the present. And we analyze this and we're going to see, yeah, no international stocks significantly outperformed the three fund portfolio. And now, however, let's go back another decade. We'll go to 2001 to 2000. We'll just say to 2010. And now we'll look at it again. Uh, well, now it's, there's a different story. Um, of course, that period of time, we saw two significant uh, bear markets, right? The tech bubble burst and then the Great Recession. So the compound annual growth rate wasn't great, but it's actually higher uh, for the three fund portfolio if we include international stocks, all right? So that decade, international stocks helped. Let's go back another decade. And if you're a stock market historian, you know that this decade was quite good for U.S. stocks, so they should prevail. And sure enough, now uh, the portfolio with no international stocks does notably better uh, than the portfolio that's got 30% international stocks. And then before we leave this, let's just go back one more decade. There's a point to all of this. Uh, here we go. The 80s, probably international is going to win. Uh, let's see. Yeah, international won. Again, not by a lot, but you know, compound annual growth rate of 16.3 versus just under 14. So what that tells us, if we take the whole time period available to us in Portfolio Visualizer, um, not having an international exposure helped us. When we look at it by decade, it varies. The last decade, international didn't help us. The first decade you know, of the century, it did. The 1990s didn't help us. The 1980s, it did help us. It's like, okay, now what do we do? Well, We'll get there, but that's the data. Now, I want to show you, uh, before we move into the reasons why I think you might exclude international exposure from your portfolio, I want to take a quick look at Morningstar. If we look at, say, um, we'll look at Vanguard's total stock market ETF. So this is an ETF that covers the entire U.S. market. Um, if we look at the portfolio, we can see that it has a price to earnings of about 21. Now that is a forward looking price to earnings. So it's using estimates of what they think uh, the US market will earn next year for the earnings portion of the ratio. Now let's compare that, remember that was 21. Let's compare it to an international fund. This is Vanguard's sort of global fund excluding the US. How does it compare to the 21 for U.S. stocks? Well, you can see here it's significantly uh, cheaper on a P.E. basis. We could look at the price to book. It would be similar. Uh, but the point is international stocks on a say price to earnings uh, evaluation are significantly cheaper than U.S. stocks. And the same would be true, by the way, if we focus just on emerging markets. This is the Vanguard uh, Emerging Market Fund. I own this fund. And if we look at the PE, yeah, it's even cheaper, 13. So, so what do we have right now? Long-term international stocks don't seem to help us. 
They can help us though over um, say a 10 year period, depends on which 10, 10 year period we look at. And as of valuations today, 2021, international stocks appear to be significantly cheaper than US stocks, at least on a price to earnings or price to book uh, basis. So having said all of that, uh, keep that in mind. I wanna kind of go through the arguments of why you might want to exclude international stocks from your portfolio, right? Now, to be clear, I'm talking about funds that invest in companies that are headquartered outside of the United States, right? All right, the first thing I wanna point out is that two legendary investors, Warren Buffett and Jack Bogle, have both uh, indicated that they'd be perfectly comfortable excluding international stocks. Warren Buffett, kind of indirectly, of course, he's a big fan of the US. He does invest in companies headquartered overseas. Uh, but when he was asked, you know, how should the average investor invest? His answer was put 90% in an S&P 500 uh, index fund and 10% in short-term US treasuries. And I've done a video on the Warren Buffett portfolio. It does not include any international stocks. And the same is true with John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. He did an interview uh, with Morningstar, and I will link to all of this below the video. Uh, but he did an interview, and and you know he's he was often questioned about this. He just felt that there was no reason to have direct international I exposure. He was perfectly comfortable uh, leaving all of his money in uh, U.S. stock funds. Now that's fine to a point. The question though is why, and there were a number of reasons that he gave and that others have given. And the first kind of core reason from his perspective was, look, the United States is simply the best place to invest. We have a very entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, we have very sound institutions. You think financial institutions, governance, um, obviously a developed uh, government. Not, you know, obviously we have our issues like any country, but certainly when you compare it to many, many countries in the world, we're pretty solid as a place to invest. He points out we also have a very diversified economy. It's not as if we're reliant completely on, let's say, travel or agriculture or commodities of some kind, mining uh, for our economy. We have a well-diversified uh, economy. Um, the other thing that he points out, and others have as well, is that U.S. companies do business all over the world. I mean, just think of Apple or Microsoft. You know, these companies. Uh, do business all over the world. They generate revenue in all kinds of currencies and in all kinds of markets. In fact, you know, when you look at sort of the U.S. Uh, public market, roughly 50%, in some cases I've heard 40%, but a pretty significant percentage of both revenue and earnings come from abroad. So you, even if you're just investing in the S&P 500 or maybe a total stock market index fund, you're getting significant exposure to business all over all over the world. Uh, another reason is that many have started to question just how well diversified or, or how much diversification international stocks really add to a portfolio. It seems at least when you know we have a, a bear market, something happens and stocks go down, they tend to go down everywhere. It's not as if international stocks have given us great diversity, at least that's the view of some, there's even a Morningstar article, and again, I'll link to it below the video, uh, but they, they concluded that actually, if you want diversity, there's something that's actually better than international stocks, even better than um, specifically emerging market stocks for diversification. What is it? U.S. small cap value, oddly enough. 
So uh, many question the, the diversification benefits uh, of international stocks. And I think sort of a, a, a final reason is that there are many countries that are politically uh, or economically unstable or bo both politically and economically uh, unstable. And, you know, trying to avoid those uh, environments are pretty difficult, particularly if you're just going to put your money in sort of a broad based index fund. You know, you're going to end up investing in places that may not be very friendly to investment, uh, certainly not as friendly uh, by and large as the United States is. So I, I'll be honest with you, even though I invest in, in international stock funds, and I'll explain why in a minute, I find the arguments uh, to the contrary to be somewhat compelling. I mean, th these are certainly very notable arguments that many uh, very uh, you know, excellent investors have made in the past, not, and not just J John Bogle and, and Warren Buffett, others as well. And so I think they deserve serious consideration. And, and uh, I've given a lot of thought to them. Now, having said all of that, uh, I am still a big believer in having some exposure to uh, international stocks. Why? Well, uh, the first reason is, yes, the U.S. has been dominant, uh, certainly economically, in many ways. I'm not convinced that that dominance will last uh, forever. In fact, I don't believe it will. I don't, I, I'm not uh, the per kind of person that believes, you know, the end is near for the United States and it's, it's dom and dominance. Uh, but things don't, don't last forever. And I think we can fool ourselves into thinking uh, that they do. And I want to share with you something uh, th that will give you an example of that. This was actually in the last Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And I'm going to pull a couple of things up on the screen. Let me show you this first slide. This is um, a slide that Warren Buffett put together. He talked about it at the last Berkshire Hathaway meeting, as you can tell from the slide. I mean, I think that's about as big as I can get it. But these are the 20 largest companies by market cap, meaning the value of their outstanding shares in the, in the market as of earlier this year, March 31, 2021. And you can see they range from $2 trillion uh, for Apple down to about $336 billion for a company in France. But clearly, the United States dominates the public stock market. We've got, what, three, six, seven, eight, looks like 13 of the top 20 uh, companies, what, five of the top six. Uh, obviously, there are a couple of companies in China, Korea, Taiwan. But clearly, uh, the United States uh, dominates um, the public markets when it comes to stocks. Now, my question for you is, I'm going to pull up a slide. What do you think the top 20 largest companies looked like 30 years ago in 1989? So I guess that's what, 32 years ago. Any idea? Any guess as to how many of those companies were headquartered in the United States? There were, what, 13 today. How many do you think were headquartered in the United States in 1989? And how do you think valuations have changed? Well, here we go. Here's the slide. I was stunned by this. I have, I, you know, I started law school in 1989. Now, I wasn't investing, you know, but I was in my 20s. I had no idea that Japanese companies dominated, uh, you know, stocks as they did um, at that time. And you can see, I mean, they've got, it's almost like it's flipped. You know, they were the United States 32 years ago. Now, um, that's the first thing. The other thing to look at is, the valuations. I mean, the number one company then was valued at $104 billion. There are people worth more than that today. And if we compare that to the current list, $104 billion, the number 20 company is worth three times that. So capitalism has you know, really done 
an excellent job, if you will, over the last 30 years. But boy, have things changed. And so Japan dominated uh, the top 20 30 years ago, and today we do. Will we dominate it again 30 years from now? I mean, I suppose we might, but one thing to, to keep in mind if we look, go back to these lists, not a single company on this list from 1989, not one of them is on the list today. Not a single one of them stayed in the top 20, including, by the way, the companies from 1989 in the, in the United States, Philip Morris, American AT&T, IBM, General Electric, Exxon. Of course, the companies continue to exist, some of them, I think, yes, but uh, not nearly uh, uh, the same size and didn't make, uh, factoring in inflation and everything, and didn't make the list uh, for the top 20 today. So uh, I think things will continue to change. And my, my hunch is that 30 years from now, the list of the top 20 co companies might very well not look like the list today. It probably won't. And it's possible that not a single company on the list today will be on that list 30 years from now. That seems impossible, right? I mean, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Google. But I mean, we would have said the same thing in 1989. I mean, Exxon, for goodness sake, what could possibly happen that would bump Exxon off that list? And well, they're not on the list. So uh, yes, we've dominated in many ways. Uh, and yes, we've dominated when you look at sort of the returns over the last 30 years. I'm just not convinced that we'll continue to dominate uh, like that for the next 30 years. That gets me to point number two. I prefer the added diversification for that reason. I recognize I'm taking a risk, if you will, uh, that my portfolio will underperform because I have international exposure. But because I get that added diversification, I'm okay with that risk. I sort of couple that with the, the, the first point, that things change. And uh, it seems to me that gives me some comfort. The third thing is, as I pointed out earlier, valuations are significantly lower for international stocks. Now, that uh, doesn't mean they're going to outperform U.S. stocks. Sometimes a company or an index uh, or a basket of stocks, they're, they're valued lower for a reason, right? And it could very well, one could argue that the reason international stocks generally are valued less now, they're cheaper than U.S. stocks is because of the environments in which investment is taking place and the you know, political instability in some countries and the economic instability in some uh, companies and just the general friendliness to capital and investment in the United States, even compared to other developed uh, countries. That being said, the valuations are so significantly different today that I do take some comfort in the lower valuations that uh, international stocks uh, provide. Doesn't mean they're gonna outperform over any given period of time, but if I were to, to gamble, if I, were gonna make, if I were gonna make a bet, I would my bet would be international stocks were out, will outperform the US uh, over the next decade. Could be wrong, but those valuation differences are pretty significant. Now, where does that lead me? It leads me to an international exposure of roughly around 20, percent, maybe as high as 30 percent, probably wouldn't go higher than that. For me, I like to have a developed country uh, uh, or total U.S. or total international uh, stock fund of around 15 to 20 percent, along with some direct exposure to uh, emerging markets, uh, no more than 10 percent 
probably no less than 5%. That's my um, approach. Now, there's a final reason why I have international stocks. And I think as you make what you think is the best decision for you, I think this really is the most important factor. It's more important than looking at past data, current valuations, um, or arguments about the political and economic stability of a country. And it's this. What will you be comfortable sticking with for the long term? Uh, because no matter which way you go, there are going to be times when your choice is underperforming the other option. It's true whether you include international stocks or not. There are going to be times when your choice is simply underperforming. And are you going to be able to stick with your allocation through both good times and bad? Frankly, I think that's probably the single most important question when you're determining any type of asset allocation. You're debating the three fund portfolio versus the six fund portfolio. The question you need to ask is, what's going to give you the most comfort to stick with your choice over the long term? And I think, frankly, I can stick with an allocation to, uh, that includes international stocks, even when they are slightly underperforming a portfolio that doesn't have international stocks. I'll be more likely to stick with that than I would a 100% U.S. stock portfolio if uh, the U.S. runs into some kind of trouble where we're significantly underperforming the world uh, for some reason, maybe a reason you and I can't even begin to predict right now. So that, I think, a very significant consideration as you decide what's best for you. Well, there you go. There are the issues, the pros and cons of investing uh, in international stocks as part of your portfolio and why I make the decision that I make, which may or may not be right for you. If you have any questions, leave them in the comments below. Be happy to help you out any way I can. As I said, I'll have links to all of the things uh, that we've talked about in this video uh, down below. And until next time, remember, the best thing money can buy is financial freedom.